0: Uncle Duncan, who is Mutti's brother, lives in Scotland in this sort of farm that's very, very swanky pants. It's called Glen Lair, and it's where um, the first colour photograph was invented, and it's on this estate that they manage. And um, and he's ex-Navy. He's a captain. He is like your grandpa, brave lad, strong lad, but scary. Like, you know, (laughs) he's so funny, but scary.
1: The dark mirror
0: yeah <laughs> i
1: would watch this this is like the best pitch i've ever heard
0: i <laughs> and, um, and he um when we were going to scotland G and i for our quick like sort of mini break um he basically was uh you know the family thing is he lives in dumfries just over the border so it was all set like it was a big deal like he's in his 80s now he and his wife were gonna have me and G for coffee at 10am this morning we shot off in the motor we had to get there we had 90 minutes to do a 60 minute trip so we we're feeling pretty confident um, but we realized we were arriving empty-handed so we started stopping at these village stores to try and pick up some something these diabetics the chocolates wouldn't work kind of thing and um we couldn't find anything and so we basically an
1: ache born worthy fast.
0: <laughs> well Shep, it was so funny we then basically as it goes we get ourselves to where google maps tells us the farm is I've got, I think, four minutes to go, and it's the wrong farm. And um, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, to get out of bed and get us coffee would have taken them 60 minutes, Shep, at least. Like, gentlemen, you know what I mean? Have the coffee brewed. Um, anyway, so we are, um, we're there at this farm, and I'm to gee, shit, this is not it. So I start pegging it around the farm, knocking on doors and stuff, to see if they know where this historical place is. No one's answering three minutes to go. And, um, and then basically I said to G, right, I, we've got two calls here, no fire, no reception, no nothing. And we either drive back up the road and get to reception and call to say we're gonna be late, or we chance it and we go down this road because it feels just about right. And so we chanced it and, uh, and we drive along. Sure enough, the next farm along is their farm. We go down their snaky little driveway Get to their little their house, and he's standing outside on the cobbles with his watch for like that. And I got out of the car and he goes, One minute to go, not bad from
2: London, James. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Yes, like yeah, it's so cool. End act one. It was amazing. curtain
1: down.
0: It was so funny. So That's nice.
1: amazing, yeah. dude. And, that's what a story what an adventure uh, can i say this if i was going to write this i would never call your relative living in scotland duncan i wouldn't dare (laughs) it's it's might as well call him angus (laughs) i love that that makes me happy did you have a nice coffee was it nice
0: we had a lovely coffee chef it was good and like he um here's a cat called kiwi so uh, it was quite funny that she was called, was also a Kiwi, and he'd spent time in New Zealand in the Navy and stuff. So it was all, it was all lots of bonhomie and happiness. And, yeah, it was it
1: nice. Well, that's lovely, Jimmy. Well, that warms my cockles very much. I love it. I love it.
0: <laughs> Should I do a welcome for old oh, time?
1: Please sake? Why how not?
0: How to, or
2: just for the sake of the listeners.
1: <laughs> for old time's sake? Jesus. How about the sake of doing your goddamn job? <laughs>
0: All right. Well, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy.
1: Hello. I'm Sheppy.
0: <laughs> and today we have. Well, actually, no. I was about. Uh, let me start explaining wow. what we're going to do today, so you can then say, no, 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 Jimmy. <laughs> what is this podcast that these lucky listeners have managed? To
1: Someone's care? been reading the script. <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem to have all the answers. You're eight steps ahead. You're like God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, we'll see how long that lasts, Sheppy. We'll see how long that lasts. Let me <laughs> explain that we are the What If podcast for movie sequels, prequels, galore, um, in celebration of existing IP, TV, movie, etc. Um, and today, Sheppy, you set us a very special um, project: an American werewolf in London, Sheppy. An American
1: werewolf. That's in- lovely. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm loving it. Um- Okay, well, so you watched this, right, Um, fairly recently, Prep.
0: I did, and it was a treat, a treat to behold, Sheppy. It had been about 20 years, I think, at least. I always say 20 years. I obviously didn't go out much 20
2: years ago.
1: (laughs) You had a very busy year. (laughs) Um, Yes, Jimmy, I did choose American Werewolf in London, the John Landis, 1981, as we all know, production. (laughs) <laughs> like a stage musical. Um, I've always really liked An American World in London. I like very much Landis. Uh, well, I, I like a lot of his films very, very much. Um, what, what's your thought? I mean, I'm glad you said you were happy with, with the choice, Jimmy. Are you... I don't think we've ever watched this together, have we?
0: I don't think so, no. Um, no, I mean, it was quite a formative one for me as a kid, I think. It was one of the... the I, I, it's sort of... It's one of those... I guess well, comedies where as a kid I didn't necessarily see it as a comedy. You know, I I, I kind of was scared by it. Um, I think mm. I watched it pretty young, first time. And, How
1: young are we talking here? Oh
0: man, I want to say latest eleven. Nice, 10, yes, 10. yeah. So yes. um, yeah, and it was one of those. I just I think I watched it on my own kind of thing. You know, and it I think um formative insofar as it was scary. Then it was sort of slightly uh. Titillating, should we say? I think I fell in love with the ah, with Alice. The Ugg. before ugh. it was funny. I think funny was the third stage of it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wow!
1: Well, that's fair, fair enough. I think you did that in the right order. Uh, how did you come about seeing it?
0: I think I recorded it off the telly and then watched it, you know, on, on vid the next day, kind of thing. And 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 in yeah. comments, and I remember quite clearly. I, 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 There was definitely a transition point between, um, you know, him being bitten and changing, where you know perhaps went to the shops or went to school and came back or whatever. I just remember that being, you know, I watched it in stages when I could get away with it because perhaps it was one of those ones that Mum didn't quite know that I'd actually recorded overnight, and um, and, and tried to get away with watching the next day, but um, but yeah, the the, the transformation scene still holds up, I think, and and yeah. it's. Absolutely world class, uh, effectory. yeah, yes, one sure, man for sure. But yes. what was your history with it, Sheppy? When did you
1: first see it once? The... I saw it about the same age, um, happily enough, actually, Jimmy. Um, I saw it, um, so uh, I saw it with my older brother. Well, this is to say, I didn't really let me explain. So, me and my older brother, Stuart, uh, we have Robocop, and so we watch it, and it's great, and it's Robocop. I will say, as a ten or eleven year old, the violence in Robocop, I was okay with, but it did kind of the, the, the nastiness of everything of that world is so horrible and toxic. Everything is horrible and toxic that that kind of that's what disturbed me a little bit about Robocop, but I still loved it, and Kenny flyer about it became a huge thing. still is, and rightfully so. um so so that was great. And then I Remember, and then my brother was like let's now watch American Wealth in London I was like sure and we were watching the bit in the pub and it was funny and then they're out on the moors and I was a bit scared but I was scared scared and I had to hide behind a cardigan and then I got as far I kept saying I don't want to watch it anymore I'm scared and my brother was like, no, no, more. I'm like oh, okay and it got to the point in the hospital where he has the dream where he eats the the deer and then he turns into the zombie in the bed. And I got to that and I was like, I'm out! And I went to bed and had a nightmare that I was stuck on a moor with something growling at me. So there you go. (laughs) And I don't know exactly when I then watched it properly. It was probably a couple of years later I needed time to sort of get over it. Um, And then I, I watched it again, but I don't actually remember. But I know I watched it and I know I love this and then I never stopped watching it and loving it after that. So I'm going to say tentatively 40 when I, um, I probably watched it but that's a total guess. But I was still pretty young. But yeah, that first
2: time.
0: I mean, just, so this is the first time I've ever been, ever, ever been yes. slightly more hardcore than you then in getting yes. through it at 11. I feel really proud. And this might yes. have to go on my fridge today. And, uh, like Fair play. Take, and take that Charlie
1: chocolate. Uh, You've earned you it. Um, Yeah, there you go. That's absolutely true. Um, It's a great film, and it's one that has been said many times, but it is 50-50 horror comedy, and what works, well, lots of things work, but one aspect that really works is the fact that the horror part is playing in the same universe as the comedy part and vice versa, so they don't conflict. It doesn't suddenly get really zany. When it's the funny bit, you know, have the policeman dropping the things and trying to put them all back in and the doctor's office, and that's, that's great. And it's almost bordering on slapstick and it works, but it's just on the line. And then when something horrific with the wolf happens and all of that and the tragedy of the classic man story, anyway, all played out, it works. It works on, on every level um, because nothing contradicts anything. It merges seamlessly together and the humour comes from the characters and some absurdity of the situation but it's real. Um, and that, so it's a, it's a full package and it is the ultimate slash, you know, horror comedy. In this case, you have merged two genres. It's not a funny horror film or vice versa. It's really 50-50. And maybe The Lost Boys is similar, but I'm leaning towards Lost Boys being more of a comedy by a few percent. I don't know. So, and then, you know, Shaun of the Dead is the other example where it is like this following the rules and the the structure of the Wolfman story in terms of the universal classic Wolfman film and stuff. Shaun of the Dead follows the classic zombie and, you
2: know, it plays it real, it's funny, and it's real in terms of the
0: apocalypse. I love what you're saying about Shaun. I love what, and I love your point there around in the scene. The whole thing is a total mix-up because I think for me I haven't seen Lost Boys in a long time. That would be worth a sog or two, but um, yeah. I, well, think, so. uh, I think um, my my sort of vibe on it is that the Frog Brothers etc are there for relief. There's like a release valve with the comedy, like a little bit more than it being mixed in like it is here and Sean. Like you know, I, I okay. like that point, man. I think it's cool.
2: Yeah.
1: Nice. Well, tar and yes, hooray for all of that just quick as a, as a little bit of an aside because yes well so you say the last time you saw the film was like 20 years ago the classic um do you happen to remember that or in terms of your rewatch, no, recently? to
0: be honest i really don't i don't remember that's re-watching. fair yeah
1: so but. what about this one recently uh, do you yeah how i like
0: did a it enjoyed part? the revisit i i felt myself chuckling out loud a lot and um you know w- particularly like the, the, the fake porno within it. Uh, really. <laughs> see you next Wednesday. Out. A lot. Yes. Amazing. See you next Wednesday. I'm so glad you got that title because I was trying to think of a, um, a title for mine to get a sequel to the porno in my sequel. And, uh. um, and I Googled America World for London porno. And you just don't want to do that to your Google history, Sheppy. And you, <laughs> do that you see things that you don't want to. It can't be on. <laughs> um, but I'm. Um, but yeah, that really made me laugh a lot. And um yeah, yeah, and you know, all the things like, everything was present and correct about it. Do you know what I mean? It just did, it was just wonderful and really really the
2: humour
1: of see you next Wednesday, it, the, with the porno film, which Land is directed and wrote, you would assume. It's um, I mean, you know, it wasn't the second unit, is what I mean. Um <laughs> it's 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 got such an it's kind of this English humor, like it could be a, a comedy made now by Peter Servenovic about you know pretending to be a comedy from the seventies or something, but it's a porno. It's perfect. Be like, oh, who are you? No, oh, fair enough. It's wonderful. Um,
0: yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. The comedy is so ahead of its time. There, I, I, it really, yes. really is. It's it's so surprising, and um, it's
1: very nice. Okay. And Yes, and and I like it, and it shows Landis is you know digging it um, and he gets it, and it's funny.
0: And that the 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 um it, it just has a it like says it's got that tragedy to it. Like it really yeah. is a very, very sad story. And when yeah. you know like what's gonna happen to him, it's really, it's tough to watch. You know, he's he's quite he's quite real, isn't he, David Kessler? Yeah. Like I really think that he's he's flawed. Um not a particularly great friend. But I guess it.
1: Well, if you're referring to him running, you know, it's like he does go back, and he wasn't running like "fuck you." He was running just because out of terror.
0: Yeah, I you. you know,
1: yeah,
0: and that's why they play it real. They play it real, and I really respect that. I think it's cool. Um, The
1: fact that that actor, David Norton,
2: yeah, that right, yeah, Um,
1: that actor, he was in an episode of Seinfeld. And that's, I think, the only other thing I've seen him in. I did IMDb him and he has worked consistently, but, you know, he's no Griffin Doom. Really, it's, it's interesting actually how much he didn't, you know, and there was no extra blip or a failed extra blip, you know, after Werewolf. It was like, that was it. It was like the sea of everything else, was just Werewolf, you know. It's crazy. So good for him. Yeah. <laughs> good for and him. he's real. To your point, well, I, I bring all that up just to say, yes, he's real and he doesn't carry baggage from anything else uh, because you know, he just looks like David Kessler. And he is likable and he is real and it is tragic. <clears throat> and it's such a brutal ending and going in with that ju- juxtaposition of the song oh, and that last shot. It ends on her crying and then the shot of him and then it's like, pow, it's us. Uh, oh, wow, what a great film. And you're right, very tragic. Like all the best, horrors. Yeah, man. See you next Wednesday. Is originally a line from two thousand and one, the Kubrick, and it's a random line, and Landis likes it, and it's one of his things. And I want to talk about Landis's things for a second, if that's okay. Like <laughs> there are recurring motifs in his films, like the phrase "see you next Wednesday" pops up a lot in different things, and in this film, it's the name of the porno, um, but in other things, it's other things. Uh, so that's one. The other thing is Frank
2: Oz, who is in most, if not all of his films, but certainly most. Um, and that's nice. And plays a right cunt in this film. He really Mr. does. Mr. Kessler! Oh,
1: <laughs> get a hold of yourself, Mr. Kessler! Damn kids. Uh, yeah, amazing. <laughs> so that's the other thing. The other thing is, other than Frank Oz, um, a lot of celebrity cameos. Instead of being a Hitchcock or a John Badham and popping up himself, which he sometimes did, does, did, does. <clears throat> he, um, he casts fellow directors, contemporaries often mostly, as cameos in his films, and it's lovely. And also sometimes blues people who became friends with the Blues Brothers, I assume. So, so that's lovely, and that's a nice thing I really like about Landis. Um, and whilst we're talking about Landis, I should quickly say I know he's got a lot of controversy surrounding him, but not just the helicopter incident but other other things as
2: well. Uh, and, you know,
1: people say he's not a very nice person, he's not very nice to work with. So I just want to mention that to not gloss over anything, but I'm certainly not going to dwell. Um, in terms of all of that, Jimmy, what say you?
0: I, well, I, I'd totally forgotten about the Landis, um, you know, little auteurisms and, and things you were just talking about, Sheppi, and I wish I'd remembered, because I would have tried to sprinkle them into my pitch a bit more. I'll see if in the moment I can spot little opportunities because he is going to direct. Yeah. A spoiler alert! But um. Yeah. He, um, but yeah, man. And look, I mean, I on, on the personal front as well. I, I, I hear you, and I think that's we just we nod to it, like you say. I really I love this movie, so you know, and they've been quite informative for us, haven't they? You know, in the end.
1: Yeah. Um, and well, uh, yes, that's true. Well, can I very quickly, because there aren't actually that many. I've got the list here of his films that he directed. If you just tell me if you've seen them or not? Um Far away. So, All right, Wicked. So the first one is 1973, and I think this was his student film, essentially, and it's called Schlock. I have not seen that, <laughs> I'm assuming. Uh, the second movie was 1977, and it was the Kentucky Fried movie, which he made with, I think,
2: The Abrams' and um, it's like, a, it's like, not yeah, a sketch, the sketch, but cover. Like, right,
0: and I haven't it. seen it. No, you didn't see it, oh, okay. <laughs> uh,
1: but the next year, in 78, he did National Lampoon's Animal House, which of course was a huge hit, and that really launched his career. Um, have you seen
2: Animal House?
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the sort of the, I saw it too late, so it didn't kind of have the um, formative yeah. thing it has for others, but I, I enjoyed yeah. that man a lot.
1: I'm exactly the same, actually. I mean, we're parallel with a lot of Landis's, Landi. Um, so, yes, yeah, absolutely. I respect Animal House, but it's not, you know, not up there. It's a bit like Caddyshack, although I prefer Caddyshack vastly to Animal House, but it's like, I love that, but it's no vacation and it's no old day, you know, that's, that's, but in any case, so, Animal House, uh, then two years later, 1980, was the Blues Brothers, which of course is huge and cult at the same time, and it is what it is. What's your, you know, do you like that?
0: Yeah, I do, Sheppy, I do, I do. I find it, uh, I, have, I actually haven't seen that for a very, very long time, but mm. um, I quite fancy a revisit that. I quite, yeah. I, I came to it
1: fairly late, I think. It was quoted a lot in uh, Park Mead in the seventh year, actually, in our class but um, by other people but I never saw it until a little bit later to university I think um, yeah. but I like it and then I every time I watch it I like it more like
2: you know I've seen it a bunch I of know. times.
0: On yeah. my, uh, at some point I think maybe on the flight out to the UK to intern turn see you I think I watched a Belushi documentary and they had lots of Blues Brothers snippets sprinkled through it and all the clips were five star. I was like, oh, I yeah. can really give that a rewatch. You yeah. know?
1: It's very good. Actually, um, we watched it here maybe a year ago, but relatively recently
2: and it's, yeah, it's great.
1: Yeah, um, lovely. Then of course, so it's 80 is that, 81 is American Werewolf, um, 82 is Trading Places. So what a run straight away, Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf, Trading Places. And spoiler, the next one is the Michael Jackson thriller video, which is like iconic and massive in every single way. So that's yeah. a hell of a fun.
0: That's amazing. Amazing.
1: So trading places, obviously, I really like. I think you really like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stunning. Sheppy. Yeah. Stunning.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it might even be my favourite, Landis.
2: Um, places, yeah. It's
1: very special. Then it's the the unfortunate Twilight Zone movie segment um, which his his bit is actually my favourite bit the uh, guy who goes back of the bigot and racist and everything and he goes back to second world war and Vietnam he jumps around um, for all of the tragedies surrounding it what it is is great and he also wrote and directed the prologue of the Twilight Zone the movie with Ackroyd, and oh, yeah. Brooks driving it's a big night special fucking amazing love it um, so fair play oh do you like do you remember Twilight Zone the movie
0: I do remember Twilight Zone the movie Sheppy and I do remember you going for it on the. do you want to see something really scary <laughs> and uh, and doing that to me every time we're on a flight together or any situation together <laughs> and to this day it will still make me very scared <laughs> <laughs> and it's all in your eyes
1: <laughs> well there you go well I owe it all to Landis and Aykroyd so that's nice <laughs> and the thriller uh, video, which I'm assuming you've seen. Of you
0: course, like. absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah.
1: Then in 85, he did Into the Night, which I only saw once about 10, nine or 10 years ago. It's with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer. It's very random. And it doesn't quite work for me. Maybe I should watch it again. Have you seen Into never
0: the Night? Never seen, never seen. Yeah.
1: It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, very interesting. I just, I just, yeah, I, I didn't even hear about it until about 2013. I think. Uh, then in 85, he did Spies Like Us, which I love.
2: Yeah.
0: You know what? That might be number two for me. Oh, nice. Two.
1: Yeah. Wow. It is, it is pretty special. I'm, I'm going to have to say America World is my number two, but, um, but it's up there. It is up there. Spies Like Us, which we actually also here saw only about three months ago. <laughs> um, then after that the three amigos which of course is also absolutely amazing
0: jesus i'm forgetting that like, oh, i forget that it's all in his canon yeah of course
1: and they're all well, that's that
0: too, as well jeepers
2: yeah not yep, since
1: too. like not since bob reiner has someone had such an almost uninterrupted run of five-star classics. Uh, it's really impressive um, so, yes, we both like Three Amigos very much. Then um, Coming to America, which I really like
2: very much as well.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. Love it. I, I, I think it's uh, right up there with the Mirth. <laughs> I don't know why,
2: Yes. No, the, the, the here, We're still on the run
0: i We're still on the run. Because I know um, when we first started so you were always about the... So what are we displacing if this director ends up doing? <laughs> movie, though. Now, I don't mean to say that mine would be better than Into the Night, but maybe that's the opportunity here to keep the run going.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's fair. Um, Far be it for me to deny you the chance to knock like an unwanted chess piece off the board into the night, into the night. Um, So, fair enough. And by the (laughs) way, you know, he did like 80, 81, 82, 83, 83, 83. He did three things in 83 including the thriller video in the Twilight Zone segment. And then he went straight into Into the Night um, in 85. So not the yeah, so that's that's amazing. So I'm sure he might, you know, he could do Into the Night and uh, your American Werewolf film um, in the same year, if necessary. I don't want to upset any diehard Into the Night fans. After coming to America, I'm gonna go ahead and say that's the end of the run of classics. So that was '88, coming to America, and then in 1991 he did Oscar, the Stallone uh, film where he plays like a gangster in the 20s. I'm going to say 30s, maybe. Have you seen Oscar? No, no I never will.
0: Have you? Interesting
1: seen- stuff. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say no, I haven't. But unlike you, I would watch it if I had the option. I'm very curious about Oscar. I'm sure it's bad, but. I remember you and I maybe saw the trailer at Go Gilbert Odeon for Oscar, and we weren't that bothered. And your mum came out, and she'd been watching another film, probably with Vicky, and she said, "Oh, she saw the trailer to the new Stallone comedy." And we said, "What Oscar?" And she said, "No, stop it, my mum will shoot. It looks fantastic." That's a true story. Yeah. So, so we made a conscious decision not to see Oscar. Um, so fair enough. Um, then he did the Michael Jackson Black or White video in ninety one. Okay. Uh, Then he did Innocent Blood in 92. That's the vampire film. Did you see that?
0: No, 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 didn't see that either.
1: I'm going to say I have seen Innocent Blood quite a lot, and I really like it. It's very flawed, but I really, really... I've seen it a lot, a lot of times, and the last time, again, wasn't that long ago, a couple of years, maybe. uh, Yeah, I like Innocent Blood. It's... Shouldn't be compared to the Landis A list, but it's, I like it. So, yes, yes, good
2: stuff. I like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: have a beer, son, have a beer. Uh, But it's got Robert Legira and some great cameos, including, well, I'm not going to say, no, I am going to say, the cameo is In Innocent Blood, Sam Raimi plays like this morgue worker and he shares a funny scene with the undead Robert Legira. But in Darkman, directed by Ramey, Landis and Jenny Ugata cameo as surgeons in the, in the Doctor of Darkman. And also in Spider-Man 2, John Landis is a surgeon who gets killed by Doc Ock. I like to think it's the same doctor. So, so there you go. That's, that's that cameo. Um, then, after Innocent Blood, uh, we have your favourite film and mine, Beverly Cop 3 the great tragedy, the Titanic of life, uh, more so than Titanic. (laughs) So that's a shame, but we knew it was there. He did, um, that was basically it. I guess um, he made three flops in a row with Oscar, Innocent Blood, and Beverly Hills Cop 3, and Cop 3 was a big flop, even though I think it had a slash budget and everything. So I think that was basically it. He did, he made The Stupids in 96, He made uh, 17 episodes of the TV show Dream On, so fair play. So he was busy um, (laughs) around the mid-90s doing that, So he's working. He did something called Susan's Plan, which I've never heard of, I have to say, in 98. He did Blues Brothers 2000, which I have never been able to bring myself to watch. Mm -hmm. And he did that in 98. I remember when that came out, but um, it was at uni. And the guy I was at uni with was a huge Blues Brothers fan. In fact, I think I watched it with him for the first time for me, Um, and he was like, "I just don't want to watch it." And I was like, "Yeah." If he was really up with it, I probably would have just to see it, but I, I I wasn't. He wasn't, so we didn't. Um, Landis also. I'm assuming you haven't watched any of these other ways. You
2: no, no. Um, Yeah, Um,
1: he did um, a few documentaries. He did. kids movie apparently in 2002 called the Cronenberg Chronicles not about the director I assume he did one episode of the tv show Honey I Trunk the Kids in 1999 and then just various tv shows three episodes of Psych Um, and then in 2010 he did Burke and Hare with Andy Serkis and and Peg Um, I never saw that did you see that no I didn't man
0: I don't. You think you An interesting one as well, to be honest. The thing you're innocent yeah. Birkenhair with a sublime in with the two for so maybe just.
1: Give yeah, it some, I've never know. seen Birkenhair, hair, and it's something that's always been interesting. You know, like yeah, I, I'll tell you something else. It's got Ronnie Corbett in it. And oh, you can't go with that. Sold,
0: sold, sold, yeah. sold, sold. Yeah, it's
1: pretty solid. <laughs> um, and finally, um, recently in 2021, he did uh, 26 episodes of superhero kindergarten so there you go so he's he's been busy working good (laughs) for him um so there and he was also the executive producer in the 90s of sliders which i watched in the mid 90s so there you go so he's busy doing that as well
0: am i misremembering shephy but did you see
1: him once oh jimbo i wasn't sure if i was going to mention it um but yes i did um, it was at the Reichstag in Berlin.
2: Oh, and he it was like...
1: Yeah, it was about 2009 or 10. Yeah. And um, I was there with a friend and there's like a cafe at the top. I'm seeing this guy sitting, comes and sits down with a lady, presumably his wife, age-appropriate, and they sit at the table together
2: and he's wearing like a suit
1: and everything. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, that's John Landis. I mean, I've seen him in lots and lots of documentaries and things over the years. I know what John Landis looks like. and That guy, he looks exactly like John Landis. Now, the night before a flashback within the flashback, um, I'm like, Tim Roth, Uh, the night before me and my friend had been at this party in a barn about a hundred, uh, about 70 miles outside of Berlin and uh, in this farm and, and everything and It was summer. So it was nice outside and it was like a bonfire. And it was a themed party, it was like, oh, well, I don't know what the theme was. I went as a gangster, but <laughs> I think it might've been gangsters and moles, or I might've just decided to go as a gangster and it was just general fancy. And I'm gonna say it was actually gangsters and moles, And I had a long sort of black trench coat and I had this black sort of fedora, sort of, you know, black gangster hat. And I had my prescription dark sunglasses. Um, and I had a machine gun. And my friend went as a Dolly Bird. And then uh, a, a flapper, perhaps. So anyway, I'm still wearing the basic get-up the next day as we get, you know, get in rolling on the train, a bit disheveled. And I was wearing my long coat. And I looked like a gangster with a tie, black tie, undone. And... I also looked a bit, you know, with my dark sunglasses, I looked like a blues brother. And I thought that that, John Landis is gonna think I'm this deranged Blues Brothers fan who's followed him to Berlin. (laughs) And I kept, I had to keep looking because I knew in years to come, this moment would happen where I'd be recounting the story. And I had to be sure, as sure as I possibly could, there could be no doubt like, oh, so all I can tell you is I looked so, I, I, I was like, I, I was looking at him a lot. So that probably didn't help anything. But I was just really like, that guy is John Landis. And I'll tell you something else. He's eating and he's sort of talking to the woman, presumably is his wife, who's dressed nicely and everything as well. Landis, I'm just going to call him Landis, or the man, supposed Landis, gets out this massive broadsheet newspaper that opens it up. And it's obviously what they do. Um, because he's just there sitting at the table and he's reading this massive newspaper but it's covering everything so there's this massive Berlin wall between him and his wife and she's you know this is obviously what they do so she's not looking angry but she doesn't have a phone to flip through or anything she's just there looking a bit sitting a bit awkward so anyway that is my John Landis perhaps story.
2: I love it I love it Sheppy I love it
0: if you weren't dressed like a blues brother would you have gone and just said something to him do you think?
1: No no, and not out of shyness I don't think but I find it awkward they're not gonna want me to do it they you know, I could say the nicest thing and mean it for my heart and then they're not now maybe Landis would be like oh how nice that an English dude recognized me maybe his ego would like it maybe but that's terrible that the, the best thing I could think of like it might be a nice thing to say hey Landis I love your work is that you know he would see that Beverly Hills Cop 3 really hated my eyes immediately. <laughs> a terrible idea. He'd smell it on me. So, um, no, I, I'm not, I, I don't find, you know, I met Hasselhoff outside the stage door when he was doing Chicago in London, but that's because I had seen him in the play. I thought I might as well go out there, and, you know, but in fairness, I shook his hand but I didn't ask for an autograph and my mum took a photo of me standing next to him but not posing. I said, because he was posing for photos with people and he would have posed with me, but it was like, you know, he didn't want to be there. He'd just been performing. So I just stood next to him and I told my mum, just take a photo of me standing next to him whilst he's talking to someone else. But that has nothing to do with this or Landis. Landis (laughs) and Asselhoff, that's not bad. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's no Sam Mendes shaking your hands over those suitcases at harrods, but what can you do?
0: Now, listen. Anyway, there's a whole other can of words, but I think I definitely am a, an approacher, not a selfie, but I'd be a thank you for the work, yeah. sir. But I totally yeah. respect the fact that Landis would also see the Beverly Hills Cup 3 in my eyes, too, so I probably <laughs> wouldn't approach him. But
2: yeah. I'm not
1: shake something like <laughs> yeah. that off. That, that one's a keeper. But yeah. Um, uh, well, fair play to all of that. Oh, um, and yes, yeah, I love it. I love it all. So,
0: be- shall what- we? Just yeah, jump let's in. jump. I'm ready to jump. Oh yeah, let's, oh, let's do it. Yeah. There's
1: there's one more thing I'm going to say, which yeah. I had written a note to myself for this exact uh, example. I've written to myself "Pancake Dracula." So yeah. I'm going to explain that. So um, Landis, I saw he he gives a really good interview always when he's talking, and he's had an amazing life. He was on set of Kelly's Heroes, like as a um, like runner or something. Wow. And he, and he had to dress up as a nun. It was amazing. So anyway. Landis told this story in something I saw, like a documentary. I don't remember if there was a concept that he came up with that he liked or he saw it somewhere else. Um, But I think the way I read it and remember him telling the story is it's a concept that he came up with in the 70s, early 70s, and liked it. It was the very germ of what American Werewolf is in its essence. And the concept was there's a queue of people waiting outside a cinema. It's like the early 70s, San Francisco or something. And um, this guy runs up to the people in the queue and he's dressed like Bella Lugosi and he's wearing a full-on, like, you know, suit, with bow tie, white by tie, jacket, you know, cape. I um, mean, he's got his hair slicks back. He's got, like, real sort of, you know, pancake um, makeup all over his face, like a sort of a 1910, uh, sort of, like, stage hack. And he runs over to the, you know, doing his proper Lugosi, with his cape up, you know, going, ah, I am a vampire. I want to suck your blood. And he's running up to people and they're like, Jesus, get lost, weirdo. Or like, hey, baby, you can suck my blood. And all this, like, hey, look at the freak, man. (laughs) All of that going on. And he's like, and he goes up to this one guy and he's like, ah, your sir, I will kill you and drink your blood and ah. And the guy's like, oh, God, yeah, all right, just whatever. And he's at the back of the queue, and no one's really looking. And then this vampire dude just grabs him and sinks his teeth in his neck. And he is a vampire, and he just rips the guy's throat out.
2: And oh, the guy's, man.
1: like, screaming, and he, and he drinks his blood and drops the corpse. And like, Aha! and he goes off into the darkness. And, and that's the concept. Um, and I like it. And it's like, well, there you are. That's proper.
0: That is so cool. I bloody love yeah. that.
1: I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. So I wanted to remember to mention that. And and the other thing I will mention also is Landis also said at some point that he did write a script and he called it An American Werewolf in London 2. And I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s he wrote this, but he wrote it and he said it was like something, it was like one of the best things he'd ever written and no studio wanted to make it. So I assume it was the 90s and um, so it never happened. And they made it in 98. Paris that had nothing to do with flags whatsoever. And I didn't see it
2: at the cinema and it's not very good and not particularly memorable. Uh, no. and so
0: And it's not really the, the backpacker theme again, does it? And like, you know. Yes, stuff. it
1: does. It yeah. does. It takes a backpacker theme. Um, and there is kind of a suggestion that Jenny Agatha's ghost is there somehow, but it's weird stuff. It's like a reflection, Val Kilmer Elvis style in a mirror, and it's talking, it sounds like a but it's like, so I don't know. But it, but it's not, you know. He's not connected. He's like a random American who goes to Paris, and gets bitten by a werewolf, and he becomes a werewolf. And it's nothing, you know. There's no connective tissue really, apart from this one weird thing that someone probably just dropped in there.
2: Nice. I so, well, yeah. I think
0: I can't wait for this because I, this is obviously a super special movie for you. So I I I yeah I'm very excited to hear where you've gone, Sheppy. I think we'll have gone in very different directions as well, just from the little well, that's you've given me. Um,
2: yeah.
1: So, okay. well yeah. I have gone off on one, and so this I, I will try and get through this. Um, but this did this did sort of get away from me a little bit and take on a life of so. Um, in terms of when this was made, I have to say, I've got it like in my mind. It could. I I kind of wanted it to be in the 80s. I want it to feel like the 80s, but it has to, by definition, be set at least 18 years after the first one. A little bit of a spoiler in that. So, with that in mind, it has to be late 90s. Um, So, so I just said, "Oh, fuck it! I'll make it 99." So it's the end of the millennium, and there's some you know, happening in that sense, even though technically it was 2000, 2001. But nonetheless, 99 sounds good. So I've set it in 99, um, and my protagonist is like 18. Um, here's a quick question.
0: Definitely. I think we've well, got a very similar direction, and that's it. That's fun.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. that's cool. It seems like a good thread to pull there in yeah. terms of that. But so it's set in 99. It doesn't necessarily have to be made in 99. So with that in mind, it could literally be Made any time from 1982 to present day, essentially. But I want it. Ideally, it would be like made in 85 and set in 99. But it's just you're told it's 99, but it just looks like 85, you know? Um, so I'm tempted to say that, but I guess I'm going to have to say it was made in 1999. But that, but all of this vagueness means that I really have no idea about any actor. So let's just say it was made in 98, 99, set in 99 and the main character is English. Um, So who could it be? You know, Jude Law or McGregor. But I don't want it to be someone who became a big star, who was a big star in the late 80s, but became a bigger star. I want it like David Norton, not have it someone. So by definition, it's no one. Um, If Dexter Fletcher hadn't become like a really successful A-list director, I would say maybe Dexter Fletcher. But it's not Dexter Fletcher. So... So there you go. So I don't know. But I want it to, again, I don't want it to be a pretty boy and I don't want it to be, you know, someone sort of shoehorned in. I want it to be a real person. So I don't know if that's possible in the 90s. (laughs) Um, So there you go. Um, But what I can tell you is it's directed by John Landis. In the credits, it's got a whole bunch of names and then it has, and Jenny Agata. So there you go. And the title, Jimmy, is An English Werewolf in New York. Uh, so so they are. Um, I think you knew that, didn't you, Jimmy? Because I wanted to yeah, make sure yeah. that we weren't stepping on each other's toes too much. Um, so I wanted to check with you. But that was the, the very first thing. I knew right from the off that, that was going to be my title. Um, so that's nice. So, but I'm not going to do any sting songs. <laughs> so that's fine. Um, so I'll just jump in. I mean, I've got a brief synopsis, which is, I'll just say, basically. Uh, it is 1999. Oh, one thing I want to say is, how old is David and Jack, do we
0: say? I think it's classic. They look in their 20s, but they're meant to be like 18, 19, I reckon. Okay, good.
1: Think? Well, yeah, they're turning on some sort of like break between you know college or, or university, that sort of thing. So e- that's great. So assuming, because I think, again, it's like, Alan Ruck and Cameron. I think that you know David Norton was in his early thirties when he played David. Um, yeah, is he called David? Did I just?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he, he's called David in real life. Did I even know that? Is that like Martha? Um, that's weird. So there you go. Um, yes. So that that's helpful then. So it's 1999 in this case. Uh, after his 18th birthday, uh, Charlie Price, son of Alex Price and David Kessler. Comes to New York City against his mother's wishes and without her knowledge to find the family he never knew and to hopefully quench the growing pool to this side of the world and the bloodline therein, which has been growing uh, hold, its hold has been growing over. Blood ties are everything. I was gonna call this America Werewolf code on blood ties, but then I realised it wasn't straight to video slasher, so I didn't. But blood ties are everything. And he hear, and as he nears maturity, as well as the same age his father was when attacked from the Yorkshire Moors, more signs are becoming evident that he has inherited more from his paternal side than just Semitic good looks. So that's my elevator pitch in a nutshell. Nice. Um, I've gone off on one on the pre credit scene, which could easily be edited down, but I'm just going to read it. Of this bucket. So a title card comes up and it says, let's say 1981, it's like winter when they're there, right? It's winter '81. Yeah. I'd Unset. So, so it's still, a, so it's now still '1981. Uh, so a title card over black, classic, comes up '1981', and we move, we, we fade up, and we move slowly down a very long hospital corridor with an exaggerated bright white light at the end. We hear the sounds of a woman in heavy labour and doctor giving instructions. A last drawn-out scream of effort, then a beat. Then the baby starts to cry. The camera moves into the entrance to the delivery room. We faintly hear the conversation within as we get closer, we hear the nurse, he's beautiful. The mother, yes, yes, he is beautiful. The doctor, does he have a name? Mother, Charlie, he's Charlie. And the camera moves into the room in time to see the midwife handing the crying baby to exhausted a beautiful mother, Alex Price and it's only bloody Agatha. And the midwife is like, Alex, meet Charlie. Charlie meet Alex, and uh, Alex holds the, uh, the baby close and smiles at him, and she says, hello Charlie, and we move right in on the face of the crying baby, and one loud scream, and then we smash cut to an identical close-up of Charlie's screaming face, now one years old, and he's still crying, all red face and tears, and we pull out and he's in his bedroom in his little cot or whatever, and he's crying and screaming, and Alex comes in and shushes Charlie, and you know she picks him up, and she's like, "What's all this? What's all this?" And he's still like screaming. We cut to Charlie is two, and we see the pair on a bus. I wasn't sure if they're going to grow up in London, or after the events in Werewolf, if she's going to move out of London, and she's in some little town somewhere nurse. I don't know, but I've got it in London, so they're on a, pe- a bus in London and the other passengers are tutting and giving the stink eye to the mother and the screaming infant. And Alex still tries to comfort Charlie, but with no result, we cut and they're in a shop and Alex is um, putting stuff in the trolley or whatever and Charlie is passive. But then suddenly out of nowhere, he like freaks out, starts bawling and screaming again. Um, You know, because Landis is directing and writing this, of course, so you know behind the scenes he's like slapping that baby together. (laughs) (laughs) You know it. Um, so, Alex is trying to comfort with no result. So, we cut to um, the doctor's office and Charlie is still screaming. And Alex to the doctor says, He was fine all this morning. I thought of cancelling, but then this always happens. This happens all the time. He seems fine, then this. And nothing I do makes the slightest bit of difference. And the doctor, uh, an English director cameo from John Irvin, um, who directed Hamburger Hill and um, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy with Guinness and a bore deal with Arnie, for God's sake. So anyway, he's there, and he's the doctor, and he says, same story, I'm afraid, Miss Price. I can find nothing wrong with him. And Alex is like, could it be his teeth? And the doctor says, plenty of time for troubles with his teeth. No, I'd say uh, this is not due to physical ailment, nothing to cause discomfort or distress like this. I'd say it's a phase. And the doctor and the mother uh, are keeping up their discourse, and the baby Charlie continues to howl, and cry and we move back for another close-up right right into his face, looking not so much pained but simply terrified. And we cut to a reverse angle shot showing the back of his head with um, Alex and the doctor talking in front of him. And then the camera shifts position like moving up vertically. So now we see over and behind his mother and the doctor revealing a small group standing clustered uh, behind the, uh, the mother and the doctor directly opposite Charlie. And Charlie is looking right at them and he's continuing to scream and everyone else is ignoring them. And then we see them all clearly now and their flesh is hanging from the bones. and gore is showing through ripped skin and all five members are heavily decaying, heavily decaying with translucent skin and cracked muddy bones. Um, And we recognize them, I, I would say now, as the victims of his father. We've got the happy couple and the rude businessman and the homeless pair, as well as the headless body of police inspector Villiers, uh, head held tightly by blind eyes. And they all stand together and stare blankly, defeatedly at Charlie, all stare right into his eyes despondently. And Alex continues to try and shush and comfort him, bending down and looking into his POV shot, so into into the camera with wide eyes and cooing sounds. And the camera, Charlie, focuses behind and past her, at the assembled dead and the decayed yellow flesh hanging off brittle bones. And Alex is like, please be good for mummy. Please, Charlie, please, baby, please. And Charlie stares at the corpses who stare back mournfully. And Charlie screams and screams and screams. And we cut to black. We have opening credits and an English werewolf in New York pops up. Bad moon rising. I mean, fuck it, why not? Bad moon rising kicks in. We have the credits. The title card comes up uh, 1999, um, and then the Manhattan skyline pops into frame and we cut to JFK Airport. POV shot again uh, through the plexiglass partition of passport control. Now we hear a man shout next, and Charlie, now I'm going to say 18 years old, steps into focus uh, up to the window, he smiles at us and holds up his passport and says, hello. Uh, reverse shot, and we see an unimpressed passport control worker who takes and examines the passport, and then says reasons for a visit. And Charlie's like, "Holiday. I mean, vacation. I mean, to meet family. I hope. I mean, fingers crossed." He is pleasant, amiable, polite, excited to be there, very quote-unquote English in you know that Bollywood way they like, with a slightly bumbling, wide-eyed look going on. Passport guy uh, remains very unimpressed but stamps the passport and lets him through. We have a big close-up and a ka as the stamp prints uh, admitted on the page. And so Charlie leaves the airport through the main sliding doors and looks out past the taxi rank and the road and then the famous skyline, which is visible beyond. And Charlie takes it all in and lets in and takes out and lets in and takes out a nice deep breath mixed with a smile of hopeful anticipation and optimism as he sees the city and his future before him. And this is instantly juxtaposed as we cut to inside the taxi and Charlie's expression of optimism has been replaced with stark terror as the taxi moves at speed along the three-way, weaving uh-huh. and cutting up other cars and changing lanes at random. And in the back, Charlie is thrown against the door and then to his left and slides across the seat to collide with the window with his face. And Charlie is trying not to freak out at the erratic driving and at the volatile driver who is one second shouting obscenities out the window to other drivers and the next turning to talk to Charlie behind him in a nice conversational tone and then returning some angry honks and expletives out the window again, looking everywhere but at the road. And Charlie is trying to be polite and returning conversation, but is also ghost white and seconds from fainting. And the driver asks him, you know, standard, first time in New York, how long for? Family, huh? All of that, and it's Charlie Fields, and you know, we are like, "Ha, yeah!" Uh, giving us like some flawless exposition, and we learn that he's only recently found out about his American family and has never met them; that they may not even be aware of his existence, etc. Taxi drops a shaky Charlie outside a crummy hotel, and the car screeches off and leaves all that sort of burnt rubber. And uh, he ta- and Charlie takes a moment to steady his legs and his wits, and then he looks up and he got his little battered suitcase. And he appraises the dilapidated exterior of the hotel with skepticism. He talks to himself, come on, pull yourself together, plenty of shitty places in London, this is no different, and he breathes in and he stands up straight and he assumes the face and demeanour of a confident, hopeful traveller and he takes two steps towards the front door when from inside there comes the very loud noise of two gunshots from smashing glass and a scream Mid-step, without slowing or pausing, Charlie turns smoothly away from the hotel and walks confidently away up the street. And then we have a quick succession uh, of various fish-out-of-water amiable Brit amiable meeting brash New Yorker scenes. Uh, we have uh, Charlie, he's like trying to cross the road at an intersection looking the wrong way and is repeatedly almost being hit by speeding vehicles. And then we cut to him like trying to buy a hot dog from a vendor and he's like, one hot dog please. And he's presented with like a real um, crocodile Dundee want to be like uh, a hot dog just with a heap of matter spilling out from the top of the bun, and he takes it and he looks at it, and then he looks at the vendor and asks, sincerely, "What's this?" And then he tries crossing it. <laughs> And he tries crossing at a crosswalk, and the light changes to walk through that ha! and he takes a step and is again almost immediately hit by a fast-moving bus. And there's a shot of Charlie walking down like the busy street, uh, surrounded by you know other pedestrians. But Charlie's is the only face in a sea of hundreds, which is looking up and is gawping at the skyscrapers uh, with every resident bumping into him and everything and swerving to avoid him and shouting and screaming and yelling and pontificating at him as he continues oblivious, still just wandering, craning his neck right back with his mouth open. And he tries crossing the road by watching the man next to him on the curb. And the man uh, takes a confident step forward. So Charlie starts to walk, and then a taxi comes from the other direction out of nowhere and slams into Charlie. He spools across the hood, and the driver just looks at him through the you know windscreen. And the man who he was shadowing just steps in, you know, opens the door and gets into the taxi which he had just hailed apparently. And then the taxi speeds off, with Charlie barely getting off the hood in time. Uh, So after some of these wacky wanderings around New York, Uh, Charlie finds a place to stay and it's inexpensive and ramshackle uh, with humorous interactions with the standard seedy, cigar chomping, wife-beater-wearing motel owner as Charlie tries to get a room and it's a real Terminator or Highlander place with that sort of landlord. Uh, First night, 20 bucks, that sort of thing. Um, So Charlie's like, oh, it's great. He enters his horrible room, with we'll be talking about yellow walls, really small, and he plops down on this really squeaky, unsteady bed, but he's really tired, and he's, but he's very accomplished. So Charlie plops down on the bed, and he lets himself fall backwards, lying on his back, staring up at the ceiling. And there's a beat, and it's quiet, and then the bed collapses, <laughs> and he remains lying. Like, it's like, boing, 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 is the last sound. And he remains lying, looking up at the ceiling, and Charlie, just sort of like, huh, and it cuts. Um, now I don't go through it scene by scene exactly, but I got carried away with the whole opening, so bear with me. I don't. Keep Char- yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> <pretty laughs> loving it. Just keep keep plugging away.
1: So this isn't all necessarily in this exact order, but Charlie's on the motel payphone, speaking with an operator, and he's trying to track down um, the number of an of the address, or he wants the number or the address of a name that he has, and it's Lucy Havers, uh, Lee Kessler. His aunt. It's David's younger sister who David spoke to on the phone. Your little glad. I've
2: seen that um, as well. Yeah, I love that. It one.
1: is. It is. It's really. It's really special. Yeah. So assuming she's ten, um, then. So. So now you know she's like thirty, basically. Um, so he's trying to track her down. His aunt, who, as far as he knows, doesn't know he exists. We Don't really know what everyone knows about David or what happened. Obviously, people in the world know that there was a big wolf beast thing which caused a lot of mayhem, but it was shot and it's dealt with in terms of him being a human. That wouldn't have been reported, obviously. So, it's like, what was David's family told? And all of this in my version, you know, they were told that you know, he maybe just killed himself, we just disappeared. So, that's the way I'm going. So, the family yeah. have this sort of huge thing with that, like what happened to David, did he kill himself and all this.
2: Um,
1: so, so, so Charlie's trying to get in touch with her but he can't and he's on, the, he's on the phone with the operator but he's having more humorous misunderstandings when trying to get her to understand. And yeah, yes, but I've already put a coin in, no I've already put it in, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and so whilst he's doing this in the motel on this horrible phone with like chewing gum sticking to his ear from the you know, handpiece. Um, he meets another resident of the motel. This is Grungy. I think my, my backstory for her is she's an ex-child runaway, slightly punky, street-smart lady of early twenties. This is Lorna, who gives him some free advice on how to talk to phone operators in the city. And you know, he would be really, really harsh and everything. You know, says, insult her mother, insult her mother. Your mother sucks. Hello, hello. Well, thanks very much. You know, classic,
2: classic mm-hmm. stuff.
1: So they bond over a drink, um, but then he goes to the restroom um, and, you know, it all seems to be going very well, but he goes off to the restroom, let's say, and she lifts his wallet from his jacket and she opens it to take out whatever, but it's empty, apart from a faded photo of his mum and a sachet of tomato ketchup (laughs) from a diner. So she returns it, you know, pats it down and returns it to his pocket without his knowledge, and he has a little smile. He's like, oh. And she learns, you know, that he has far less than she does, spending all of his money in the world on the ticket just to get to New York. His mother doesn't know anything about it, blah, blah, blah. I think she thinks he's on a walking tour of Wales is what I've got here. Um, she is amused and charmed by his guileless positivity. And he tells her of his plan to find his father's family. Um, now, I will say in terms of, everything during the montage journey, perhaps we also amongst the wackiness we see some just like skeletons basically and david is obviously aware of them totally ignores them and it's all suggested like well yeah they're standing in the crowd opposite on the other side of the road in traffic and stuff so these the dead are still following him and they have been his whole life intermittently we and we we learn all this is you know at some point but they they've always been on and off there, um, so it doesn't freak him out. But it's been established that they're still around um, as as an adult. Um, the we, I mean, we learn at some point that the, the bodies have decomposed, the bone when he was very young, uh, and they don't, you know, they can't speak anymore, and the, you know, so they can't do anything. And so, it did probably get him to like a couple of shrinks when he was a kid. But at a certain point, he just stopped mentioning it, and he, he, into himself. You know he's like their visions they're obviously not there so he doesn't think they're real clearly he's just like i've always had this condition as long well. as like, i remember that i see fucking skeletons and it's fucked up but i can't talk to anyone about it because they make me see a psychiatrist so in his room charlie then um very you know he goes back to his room after whatever he lies back on his unstable bed and it holds for a longer beat and he sighs then the top half collapses Leaving him lying like diagonally with his legs elevated, head down by the floor, and then his bed sheets slide slowly down the mattress, exposing his legs and feet, but covering his you know, upper torso and head. And he doesn't move; but he falls asleep. Um, Charlie has a dream uh, to keep of that whole thing. Um, he starts awake and he finds himself in his own bed at, at his home where he grew up, and his mother Alex comes in. I see her dressed as a nurse, of course, and she smiles down at him, and Charlie looks up and says, Mum, what's happening? Where's my family? And Alex is like, oh, Charlie. Charlie, my sweet boy. We're family. You and I. You're my only boy, my special boy, and I never wanted any harm to come to you. You've always been so special. You're just not a fighter. And now here you have to fight. He's like, I can fight, Mum. No, Charlie. No, you're just too weak. And she leans towards him and brushes a strand of hair from his forehead and smiles tenderly. And she says in a low voice, you know what dogs do to their litter. And Charlie just looks at her. And then Alex leans forward more close to Charlie's face. And she says in a whisper, they eat their weak. And Charlie reacts and we cut back to see Alex. And her eyes are huge and yellow. And her skin is white and flaky. And her mouth is bulbous and filled and crammed with dozens of crooked, long, sharp teeth. And her mouth opens wider. And she smiles and blood pours out. And her face shoots forward, straight at Charlie, and her now impossibly wide mouth crunches straight into his chest, and blood shoots from his mouth as he screams, and he bolts awake in the motel, and he falls out of his diagonal bed, and Charlie, lying on the floor, tangled in sweaty sheets, says, Jesus Christ, and we cut. Um, So Charlie and Lorna have a shared moment together where he, the next morning or whatever, he sees her outside her room. Um, nothing's happened between them at this point. So it's, you know, they've got their own rooms and everything. He sees her outside her room being hassled by a shady dude, very thin, you know, bald headed, druggy type. Um, this is Claude. He's probably got a tattoo and some piercings, you know, the type. He is right up in her <laughs> face. Um, <laughs> we later learn uh, that Claude and Lorna have had a, had a shared past, a shared history together. And among other things, they have robbed and scammed quite a few folks together. In this case, she was obviously meant to do that for Charlie, but as she tells Claude, he has nothing. And Claude's not having it, saying that he's seen them together and that she's gone soft for him. And it's this moment where Charlie, you know, just arrives and sees this and he steps in and he thinks he's defending all of it, which he is, and things get heated. And Charlie um, leans in to his national stereotype and really blusters and goes full Hugh Grant and stammers and bumbles and quips to the slightly back-footed Claude. And Lorna's just watching it all, can't believe what she's saying. And Charlie succeeds in taking both the attention off Lorna and also taking a punch in the face. And uh, then Lorna loses it as Charlie like falls back to the ground and slides down the door or whatever. And Lorna like beats on Claude's chest, like get out of here, get out of here, you know. And she's in, and he's like, You've lost it, crazy woman. And he leaves. And she's like, i like kicking his shins and shit. Um, so he fucks off.
0: You're right about this being um, going to be in the 80s, Sheppy. It has to have that. Vibe yeah. Well. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. In case um, I
0: forget so to say I, later, I, amazing dream sequence just now with Agatha <laughs> and her face exposed for us. Amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks, man. Um, yeah, in this case, I, I think in this universe, the, 80, the 80s never ended. I think it remained. 1983 for all of the 90s, that's what I'm saying. Um, so Lorna um, likes Charlie more and more, and they share a nice moment as she nurses him, dabbing his bloody nose, and they, now they kiss. And then with increasing passion, but she breaks it off before it gets too hot and heavy, saying, I'm not a screw-on-the-first-date kind of girl. And Charlie says, don't be silly, of course you are. And she digs this cheap <laughs> shit too. <laughs> so uh, she goes to the bathroom or some such and he sighs contentedly and leans back um, and sees he's sitting next to a skeleton and he bolts to his feet and comes face to face with another and a large beetle scurries out from its eye socket and Charlie staggers back and another skeleton blocks his way, nose to nose hole. Charlie tries to scream, but we are with caught breath and an inch from in his face, the skeleton's jaw th- hangs open and out, coming out in a rasp, it says, Sue. Uh, all this freaks Charlie right out for a lot of reasons, but namely that these quote unquote hallucinations haven't spoken to him before. And now he's seeing them more and more and more. He's freaking out and he rushes out colliding with Lorna and she's like, whoa, and she chases him out into the street and catches up with him and calms him down and they have a walk through the dimming New York streets, And he tells her of the lifelong hallucinations and they've been growing and that's spoken. And she's like, that's crazy, man. Did they ever do that before? He's like, not since they lost their larynx. And he asks like, why she's still hanging out with him after he's actually like a total psycho freak. And she's like, seriously? Actually, I trust you more now that I know you're a freak. Before, I was pretty sure you were either a serial killer or a eunuch. He's like, why? Well, you are English, so? Oh, come on, you repressed spiff. You come from a country of Jack the Ripper and men called Nigel. It was a safe assumption. Uh, That's as far as I go with the Brit bashing, but I have to keep it realistic. There would be some. Um, So he also tells her of his urge to track down his forbidden family. His mother hid all the details about his father, but he found out recently about the name and family in the US. And she's like, are they rich? So Mm -hmm. Lorna helps Charlie further track down David's sister, Rachel Kessler. His aunt, now 30, he knows if somewhere in the city, Lorna finds out what Rachel's married name is, Gets an address, um, so that's nice. Now, whilst all that's going on, a creepy moment: Charlie steps into the old and creaky elevator. You know, of course, the sliding door at the hotel, and he slides up, and the lift goes up, and the inside is dark. And then, as uh, they pass the floor, it lights up, and then it gets dark, and it lights up. And, you know, and the time it lights up, there's a fucking other skeleton right in his face, and there's a job. And through, you know, the drawer opens, and through the gap, a pocket of foul air escapes this time carrying the words which come out in a rasp, beware the moon. And Charlie uh, is freaking out again, and he tells Lorna but he feels safe with her, and she's like, you lovable fucking goofy freak. And they plan to visit Rachel, his aunt, the following day. Things get really hot and heavy, and now um, in her room uh, they finally have sex. And it's a tiny room, and in the dodging lodgings, you know, it's it's a, it's romantic sex, it's nice, it is sexy, I want to keep that going, but it's also comical in the cramped space, trying different positions, with arms and legs in all directions, mostly halfway up the wall, and Charlie's like, it's like playing snooker at a lift, and now he's on top, his face inches from hers, and um, so yeah, so he gets on top, and it's very central, very passionate, and it's very kind, um, and, and it's getting softer and it's nicer. And then his face contorts and he gasps in pain and surprise and he screams and it's agony and his body snaps and pops and right on top of her, dare I say in her, he turns into the wall and she is screaming as his body cracks and contorts and her legs are thrashing wildly and she shakes her head in wild terror, unable to move, totally pinned. In front of her eyes, Charlie's screaming mouth breaks. The muzzle of the wolf elongates right at her as she watches helplessly in horror. And still in mid-change, the semi-wolf bites off her face and ravages her. And it it all happens mid-coitus. Now in the motel room, fully formed, the wolf rips apart Lorna's body and destroys the room and smashes out through the window, down three stories to the streets of Harlem or wherever it is. And he snarls and he runs and he snaps and he runs off into the light And it's you know it's dark as fuck um, and a little bit of a twist there. Um, that's, that's, that's it for Lorna uh, pretty much. So it's like fair play. Now I want to say a, be- a few things. So the wolf stuff, I've got a few things where some potentially vaguely comical things happen involving the wolf, and I want to make it totally clear that this in any way... There is no, it's all shot in, in a way where it's not the wolf going boink bigger's back or anything like that um, at all. The wolf remains the wolf in its purity and doesn't do anything out of character. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make that very clear. Uh, the, the wolf now out in, um, you know, I wanted him to be in as many burrows as possible in New York. So I just have him in Harlem and he runs and snaps and a lady stops dead in the street, paralyzed in front of him and the wolf rears back, apparently about to attack, and a man steps out of a shop right next to them, and he sees the wolf and he screams, and the wolf turns and swipes at him with his forepaw, and it bats the man's head off, which flies back through the shop window, inducing a hearty scream from someone within. Uh, On the street, the wolf barks and runs off past the woman, leaving her rooted to the spot, panting with fright, blood flecks across her face. And the wolf has some adventures, uh, in the seedy parts of town, before heading uptown, uh, he goes, I, I see it in Port Authority, uh, and a plump American man from the Midwest, and uh, like the classic tourist, is posing for a photo with his wife, and the wife also with like, you know, I heart NY you know, t shirt on and stuff. It's like she's like, and smile, and she takes a photo, and we see him. And just as she clicks, the wolf runs past behind the man, and you know, the image does that classic freeze into the photo to show the man grinning in the foreground, the Hudson in the background, and this blurred, massive wolf streaking by. Um, And then the image unfreezes and the wolf shoots off and the man, totally oblivious, says to his wife, did he get it honey, honey? And we cut to the wife who's frozen in abject horror, the camera still raised, held tightly by white knuckles. Uh, So a man in a suit is shouting at a hot dog vendor, maybe it's the same hot dog vendor and maybe it's a cameo by someone. Maybe the man is, but more likely the hot dog vendor is a cameo, but you tell me, man. I'll, I'll just insert it there. Uh, Wolfgang Peterson is selling a hot dog, and right. um, the man, uh, like a yuppie type in says, what type of meat do you call this? And the wolf comes out of nowhere, plowing straight into the hot dog cart like a runaway train, smashing it and spraying sausage and water and bits of cart everywhere, covering both men. And before they can react, the wolf bites through the customer's throat, spraying a huge gazer of blood all over the pile of frankfurters littering the street. And the wolf turns to the terrified hot dog vendor, who's still holding the hot dog piled high with gunk, and the wolf sniffs the man and the hot dog, and then the pile of sausages on the ground, wrinkles his nose and runs off, leaving them untouched. The vendor still clutching the lone hot dog, watches him go. We see uh, the nighttime skyline of Manhattan, Hear the wolf howl, and it's morning. Uh, Charlie wakes up in a tree. He has a naked adventure, classic, getting back to the motel. But, like his father, at first he tries to hide behind bushes and trees and things. But he soon realizes that in this part of the town, at this time of morning, no one's paying attention to a man with no clothes. It's probably quite normal. So, we have a shot of Charlie walking down the street, fairly casual, proper naked, shot in a clever Bart Simpson way where it's covering his junk. Uh, past people at bus stops, outside shops, hailing taxis. He just walks down the street, totally naked, being utterly ignored. He passes an old lady, uh, and he says, "Morning." And the old lady says, "Nice dick." So it's uh-huh. still early morning, and he makes it back to the motel. Um, but it's you know it's it's, it's partly demolished, um, with the police outside and people are, you know taking statements, and a large crowd gathered. Uh, now, we meet the chief detective on the case, and it's Detective G- uh, Garnet, who's in his maybe 40s or 50s. It's pretty cool. I don't know who he's played. I'm so bad because I didn't know what year I can never focus on 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 the actors, but this is someone. <laughs> um, but again, like the first film, you've got your odd Rick May or Glover, Ryan, but you don't have anyone, you know, so so there isn't really necessarily... You have your, your your director cameos, but there's no one else really. I don't think. Maybe a Ralph Brown pops up or something at some point. Anyway, the chief detective uh, Garnet. He's um, interviewing Claude. You know, um, the, the the guy who punched Charlie, the ex-colleague of Lorna. Uh, Claude is, you know, obviously a, no, a nasty, violent lowlife, but he did care for Lorna in his own way. And he's now telling the detective and anyone who will listen that it was this weird English guy who was with her. And he was obviously the one who killed her. He was obviously crazy. He killed her. He killed her. And he vows revenge on Charlie's tail. Uh, Charlie manages to sneak in, avoiding the police, and he has a slightly tense and you know, exciting moment of avoiding the cops and getting past her room, which, of course, was the scene of the crime and the cop outside and he makes it to his room and he hurriedly gets dressed, grabs his bag and goes out the window just as a cop comes in, missing him by moment, moments. Charlie finds a quiet street basketball court, sits down, taking stock with no clue what to do next. He's freaking out, he's talking to himself and he says, like, just breathe, just breathe. Oh my God, you know, what are you gonna do now, murderer? And a voice next to him says, you could try saying sorry, and he looks calmly and then does a massive double take and it's Lorna and she's not totally out of the picture. She's Uh, sitting next to him. uh, Her body is barely hanging together. Her face is missing and her hair is a state and Charlie's holy shit. And some players from across the street react. Uh, And yes, so Charlie now is ghosted for the rest of the film by Lorna who has very little face left but disturbingly is mostly still naked but, you know, she's wearing like a morgue shroud or a bed sheet or like a ripped and savage sex pistols T-shirt. And yes, uh, she is now his Jack. Um, Charlie learns through Lorna's zombie that he is all—he was always going to change it within him physically uh, from birth. Once maturity had kicked in and his chemical balance matched his father's at the age of the original bite, it, you know, this was always going to happen. Um, with Lorna's help, Charlie finds his 30 year-old aunt Rachel's place in a very nice brownstone quite right here on the upper west side so he turns up there a bit of a state and there's a whole scene where he knocks on the door and she opens it and you know he has to tell her who he is and there's all of that but at the end of the day she does believe him he's got um, he's got a photo of like you know the dad with the mum and stuff you know back in the day before he turned into a worm like a snapshot type thing. Um, and he said, "That's my mom. That's my dad. You're my aunt. You know, like, you know that sort of stuff." Um, so he lays it all on her. Now I'm going to say, and this is very open to debate, or this is open to option, um, but I'm saying she's married and she has a baby, but they really don't play a part. So I don't know if she's a terrible mother and an awful wife, I guess, but she has a husband and baby. Now the husband's at work and the baby's there it's the fucking baby, so that's okay. And she listens to all of this with disbelief, uh, but you know she basically, she she does believe him. So um, it seems that also she has done an obsessive amount of research into this field since the mad beast that attacked London the night of David's disappearance has been dismissed by most, but not her. And she always thought there must be a connection. Uh, Rachel acts now as the doctor from the first film in that, you know, driving up to the slaughtered lamb. She's a psychiatrist. She specializes in depression and suicidal cases. That's what everyone was led to believe happened to David, especially after that phone call home. So Rachel uses her contacts in therapy to find out information about lycanthropes. And she learns that the quote-unquote delusion is actually increasing in commonality just in the last 50 years or so, with more people in cases every year reported, mostly unsolved, with the subject missing presumed dead after a very short time. And in most cases, you know, these are not just matters, these are actual werewolves. So she tells Charlie about his father um, and shows a nice photo of him from before the trip to Europe and how such a kind and loving and pain in the ass older brother he was and how their parents never gave up on him. But her older brother, the middle brother, David, uh, Max, who I assume is named after Max Landis, um, John's son. Uh, But her older brother, Max, uh, wants nothing to do with it and has always been furious at David for leaving them. Uh, so the second portion of the film basically now has Charlie dealing with the situation into cut with Rachel's detective work after tracking down, tracking down a Dr. Kevorkian, and this is either Frank Oz or Jim Jarmusch. I mean, is it Frank Oz because he was in the other one, but can he play two characters in the same universe? Of course he can. <laughs> so Jim Jarmusch is definitely in this film, but this this doctor may also be Frank Oz. Um, Specializes in black and three, um, Meaning Rachel goes to see him in upstate New York at an ancient asylum for the insane, and this is the parallel scene, of course, to the you know doctor going to the slaughtered lamb. There are the doctor tells her several inmates in this place who are convinced they are werewolves. Uh, some worship the moon, and the doctor says, well, some just lick their balls. I can I can see Frankenstein. The doctor is specializing in such cases she learns of the strong blood ties that in many, if not all cases, the subject leads behind a lineage of the disease passed down through familiar blood. The doctor says, in werewolf mythology, it is these wolves created by natural birth, genes passed down and not by a bite. These are the apexes. They are not tied to the same rules as those of the common wolf mythology. Likewise, their bites can create others like them, other apexes. Um, he goes on to say, a blood bond only grows in strength, united and cooling to the offspring. Um, Rachel also, and this is all intercut with our stuff, Rachel meets an inmate called Randall Mattener, who's in his 30s, total psycho, worships the moon, um, and, he, and werewolves. And there's a nice creepy scene, and he's a real wendy wanna be uh, Rachel's research leads to information about wolves if you are bitten that's one thing but a wolf that you know passed down through blood and not a bite or something else blah 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 and uh, this is what led Charlie to America this uh, family line the blood connection and this is what he's feeling now even more especially than it's changed once so he is in tune with Rachel and uh, feels a deep protective kinship towards her um, and he also feels, Charlie also feels the draw of these other potential wolves. And Charlie uh, says at some point, you know, it's like a scent on the breeze. It's always moving and it's always right there, tangible. I can taste it. So through Rachel's investigation, as well as information from Lorna's witty faceless corpse, we learn there are wild wolves um, potentially similar to Charlie. These breeds, um, you know, I've sort of gone off on one about the potential bat story about Massachusetts, Salem, New York and Connecticut, but the southeast, I mean, at the northeast of America, essentially has a glut of this. And maybe because of the location, it's similar, it's good for the wolf you know, in terms of climate and so forth. So that goes into a little bit. Um, and Charlie is aware he's in wolf country. With Rachel and Lorna's help, Charlie learns that he will continue to change Uh, the the moon, you know, and so on, the wolf will grow stronger, the connection to the outer pack will grow, and eventually, if he's an apex, his humanity will fade, even while still in human form, it's a real bundle fly wannabe, and eventually his human side could well be consumed entirely by the wolf. And the Doctor says, like the weaker twin in utero, Charlie's wolf spirit and human spirit, therefore, will be fighting for dominance. and should the weaker be extinguished, the other will dominate forever. Uh, it's a bit of a Jack Nicholson wolf one of me. Uh, Charlie is being freaked out by Lorna's corpse and the and all this info about bloodlust. There's a scene where he calls England and speaks to Alex, his mother, and it causes a parallel scene to the phone call in the first film. But we get another scene with um, Agatha. And we have her, it's a nice emotional moment, and she's like plead, you know, she pleads for him to come home, and he says it may already be too late. And uh, she's like, all right, Charlie, you stay right there. I'm coming to you. And Charlie says, it's too late, Mum. I'm not here. And he hangs up crying. Uh, Meanwhile, Dr. Kevorkian, um, either in the first meeting or later by phone, he tells Rachel that he has had a breakthrough with with his research, with this inmate who she meets. And um, he asks if he can meet Charlie. And so Charlie and Rachel drive up uh, to the upstate asylum and they meet the doctor. And in his study, before a crackling fire, the doctor lays it all out. The conversation starts academic, but slowly things turn creepy. The doctor's manner and conversation slide into the weird. And you know, it's like that really good scene in Fellowship of the Ring with Christopher Lee when he's talking to Gandalf. And he starts off being really amiable and nice, but then little things come out and he's realizing he's revealing himself to be sinister and a menace. And yeah. you know, so the doctor, in this case, turns out to be a wrong and as the scene and the man gets more sinister and creepy, the penny finally drops. That's why I want a roaring fire. I just wanted it by fire firelight. It's a trap. The doctor is a nutter and obsessed with werewolves. The asylum is a very old building and looks almost like a castle with large stone walls and towers and fortifications, as well as old narrow and winding corridors inside. And he locks Charlie and Rachel together in a tiny stone room. It is dusk and the doctor says, and tonight the moon grows full. And in the tiny room, Charlie is screaming, let her out, please let her out. And Rachel is terrified, and night falls fast, and the moon comes out. Charlie changes right in front of Rachel. And she's sure she's dead. Everyone's sure she's dead. But the wolf recognizes her scent, it's got that familiar bond, the, the, the blood ties, and there's a moment where you know she is you know huddled on the floor, totally in a little fetal ball, and this wolf is towering over her. And she like you know peeks up you know and the teeth and the snout and the eyes are like right there in her face. That's a trailer shot. Um, then it turns from her and smashes through the door, rips the uh, rips the arm of an orderly, Sam Raimi and chases Doctor Kavorkian down the corridors, etc. In a creepy chase, and uh, Doctor Kavorkian runs up this winding staircase, barricades himself in a room, upper tower, in the salar- in the asylum. And he's locked in the room and the doctor, you know, does that classic. He starts a few sobs of relief and then he uh, hears panting and goes to the little window and he stands close looking out, but it's total pitch darkness outside and all he can see is his own reflection. And then the glass mists up suddenly from the outside and then the condensation fades a beat and then it mists up again. And a moment of confusion, then the doctor realizes its breath. And the wolf smashes his face through the window and grabs the doctor in his mouth by the head and wrenches him fully through the window and throws him out the window. And the doctor falls from the high tower, his head a bloody mess already, uh, screaming all the way down where he lands on the roof of a car, smashing all the windows with the impact. And the body lies on top of the flattened car. We see the sign next to the car and it reads, reserved for Dr. J. Orkian." And in brackets, <laughs> get your own space, exclamation mark. <laughs> uh, the wolf, is, we, we we learn, is able to climb vertically on these walls by using its massive claws that dig deeply into, like, wood and brick and stone. So it smashes its way out of the building. It probably eats a few more patients than the doctors while releasing several of the other inmates. And the wolf is trapped in the compound, but the wolf-worshipping inmate, Randall Matema, the nutter who Rachel met earlier, he comes out into the courtyard, he's nuts, he's a real McGann in, uh, in Alien 3, one of them, and he worships the wolf and he approaches, and of course we all think the wolf will eat him, but the inmate opens the main gate because all the guards have fled, and the wolf snarls, ru- rushing past Randall, knocking him down with a snap, and the wolf rushes out of the compound and disappears into the thick woodland beyond. And Randall shakily gets to his feet, like this sort of shaky relief, laughter, tears in his eyes. And he watches the darkness and he looks at his arm, which is bleeding uh, heavily. And he looks at the blood running freely down his arm and he smiles in wide eyed rapture. So the wolf runs uh, through upstate countryside, New York by night, may well eat some campers in a tent scene, like uh, father and daughter waking up in a tent and hear a noise. And the father opens the tent and sees nothing. Then his little daughter screams and is pulled out backwards through a hole in the back of the tent. She's eaten. The father screams and tries to shoot with his rifle, but he's too slow and panicked. And the wolf leaps on him too. Little quick thing there. Wolf uh, makes it back to New York City. Um, you know, it's a quick run for this big wolf. Um, and we see him leave his. Uh, oh yeah, he he gets to. Uh, the Statue of Liberty and he does a piss on it. He marks his territory on the base of the Statue of Liberty uh, and, and we cut and Charlie wakes up in the morning on the grass next to the statue, next to a huge wet patch on the base of the plinth. And you know, Charlie steals a sweater and some jogging shorts from a tourist stand, pure I heart NY, all of that. Charlie gets back to Rachel's place, the brownstone near Central Park West. He enters the third act. The druggy pimp thief Claude has been telling the police to look for Charlie as he surely killed Lorna. And he follows the detective, Detective Garnett, and tracks down Charlie at Rachel's. And it all converges at once. Um, The police Claude, Rachel, as well as um, assorted uh, dead, including Lorna. Charlie feels he's putting Rangel in danger. uh, If not from the wolf, but by his own blood ties to her. Now at the moment he doesn't know if he ate her. In the tower so he has to find out but he's worried you know he'll turn her or he'll kill her and he needs to see first if she's okay and alive and then we'll leave forever daytime it's morning it's pretty busy but he gets to rachel's uh brownstone and she has made it home um before the police got to the asylum and you know she's fucked up but she's sitting in the kitchen and pale and she's having sent her family away and charlie gets to the front door and rings and speaks into the intercom to her and he tries to talk to her, but she's terrified of him. And he gives her like this little emotional speech about being sorry, about sorry for all of it, sorry for his father, sorry for the pain. And it, of course, is again, similar to David's phone conversation with her, 18, 19 years previously. And he says he just wanted to see if she was alive, and he now will leave. And he starts to walk away from the door. Rachel inside is in two minds, utterly torn. She gets up, moves to the front door, Outside, Charlie hears the door unlocking behind him. He smiles, he turns. Claude emerges from a bush or something and grabs Charlie from behind with a huge hunting knife at his throat and he manhandles Charlie backwards across the road over the little stone wall and into Central Park. Rachel comes out in time to see most of this. She calls out, then rushes back inside, snatches up the phone and we hear 911, what's your emergency? In the park, under a bridge, in a long tunnel, in the dark, Claude hits Charlie several times, holds the knife up, showing it to Charlie with intent. And Claude is like, she was just a junkie runaway, a dumb, stupid, selfish tramp, and I loved her. And in the exterior, we cut to the exterior of the park, and we see cops swarming in, and cars and things, and we hear radios, and we also, the chief detective, Garnet, is saying, you know, multiple, uh, yeah, suspected, suspect in multiple homicides, inside park, huge knife, armed and dangerous. And in the tunnel, in the dark, Claude hits and kicks Charlie and stands him up, ready to use the massive blade. And Charlie's like, wait, just, just wait. And we see the police on the horses, and they all move through the little park on the bike paths and the walkways, all through the park. And under the bridge, Charlie starts what is sure to be a life-saving impassioned speech about his own horrors, his love for Lorna, his ultimate innocence. And he gets halfway through his opening sentence before Claude steps up and rams the blade deep into Charlie's belly. Uh, His eyes fill up with almost comical surprise. Charlie looks down at the long blade as it slides out from his belly, which then gushes blood. Can't believe it. And he almost drops as his knees buckle He's held up and close by Claude. and And Charlie stares into Claude's eyes and he breathes out shakily. Then Claude stabs him in the belly again and again and then again. And now Charlie goes down and he's on the floor and his guts are out and he's on a heap on the ground. And Charlie uh, he's down, clawed his running feet and shouts from the police from you know, the light beyond the tunnel entrance. So he turns to go, but he bends to wipe the bloody knife blade on Charlie's prone body, like on his shirt. And he wipes one side of the blade and he turns it and he wipes the other side of the blade. And then an elongated, mid-changed hand paw shoots out and grips Claude's hand, which is holding the knife. Claude yells out in surprise. And then Charlie looks up and his face has begun to change. And he screams at Claude, who screams back as Charlie begins to rapidly metamorphosize into the wolf. As the bones crack and the muzzle extends, the powerful hand becomes the powerful paw, gripping Claude's knife hand and it contracts, and we hear all the bones in Claude's hand crunch and snap and grind. The skin tears, and the hand is turned to lumpy jam, smooshed around the knife handle. Uh, Claude screams as the grip is held during the entire change, and in the end, Claude is left with no hand at all, just a wet flap as the knife hits the ground, sticking up with a quiver, and Claude looks at his stumpy wrist, then at the wolf, who's now fully wolfed up, rearing up in front of him and we cut to outside the tunnel and the police have all rushed to there. the sounds of the screams and the violence from inside the tunnel and they shout instructions into the dark mouth and then a moment and we hear a roar and then a scream and then a tear and then the top half of claude's torso comes flying out hitting a mounted policeman and falls off his horse the horse rears back in panic and turns to flee as the water emerges from the tunnel it is broad daylight uh, there is no moon. The all horses immediately panic and turn to flee, stampeding the fallen policeman on the ground and through the gorpers who are standing behind. The wolf snaps and runs. Detective Garnet sees all this. He runs forward. He draws his gun. He shouts, Stop! He takes aim. A Central Park horse and carriage carrying tourists, uh, maybe Susan's parents. That's a Seinfeld reference. Uh, There's snapped up by the wolf, the horse bolts um, and panics, um, taking the terrified tourist with it. The horse and carriage um, swerve from the path and charge straight at Detective Garrett, who turns but too late, and the horse is too fast, and he goes under the horse, screaming, and then he's dragged by the carriage for a moment before the wheel runs over his head with a crack. The wolf runs free in Central Park. He attacks pedestrians, joggers, police. A mime has his hands up against an invisible wall, and then he opens an invisible window. Then he sees the wolf, and he opens his mouth in silent scream. But before he can make a sound, the wolf bites down hard on his head. And the wolf runs out of the park through the streets, and he runs through Washington Square and all of that. And he go through the fountain and then further down the road, right down the road, very expensive shot, traffic swerving everywhere to avoid him. Wolf runs down the streets. He's huge and able to climb up sides of many of those buildings, head straight to Times Square. Anarchy, carnage, Wolf, Times Square, police trucks, cars, helicopters converge. Rachel is following all of this. She, I, I reckon she's got a little scooter and she's like going after them all. Um, she's trying to follow. Mayhem. Rachel catches up but is held fast by heavily armed police. The wolf seems to have a choice run away or attack those apparently threatening his blood his family so he attacks kills many police is surrounded the cops open fire he's wounded with blood on his fur runs down an alley through the backstage door of a broadway hit you never saw me on the tuesday he bursts into the wings of the matinee during a spellbinding scene. The actor on the stage is so into his performance, he doesn't notice that all the other actors have broken character and are swearing and bolting from the stage. He doesn't even notice the screams from the audience. until He turns uh, turns on the audience angrily and starts to berate them. Then he turns and comes face to snout with the wolf and he opens his mouth to scream and the wolf punches his jaw off, which flies through the air and into the pit, landing loudly inside a trombone which is dropped by the player of horror. The wolf leaps from the stage and charges down the stalls, running over some audience members, as well as a lagging usher. And the wolf crashes out into the foyer and then through Midtown. Um, But he's leaving little bits of blood where he goes. And we hear police radio saying there's a new sighting, and it's in Wall Street, and the copters and cars race down there in time to see the wolf, apparently no longer bleeding, but he's eating uh, a yuppie, cell phone um, shouting banker type before snarling at the massive statue of that bull that was near in Wall Street. Yeah. And then the police give chase as the wolf finally rides at the Brooklyn Bridge and he causes more vernicular van- uh, carnage, cars and motorbikes flying off the edge of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, people are being run over, wolves snapping at everyone. The wolf seems to have recovered from the bullets and it seems actually pretty good. He's going mental on the bridge. Uh, Rachel arrives on the scooter weaving between the wreckage Wolf sees her and approaches, Rachel approaches the wolf, understanding the blood tie stuff, but this time now, suddenly, Rachel notices, and so do we, this time the wolf actually seems intent to cause her damage and harm, and is approaching her with absolute menace. Uh, It snarls and it's about to pounce when the full firepower of the NYPD opens up on him, and he's shot the fuck up, and he staggers back, and he falls from the bridge, and he falls, he crashes down into the shallows of the Hudson, down below on the muddy bank. It lies bleeding as more police, you know, I see like a, a big bird's eye view shot of the wolf on the on the mud. And then police in a circle converge with a closing circle around the wolf. Uh, rifles raised up um, and Rachel stands at the edge of the bridge crying, looking down. And the wolf in the, snarl, in the mud snarls at the figure surrounding him and then uh, they open fire. And Rachel closes her eyes and she can't watch. And on the bridge, uh, the police start to lead Rachel away. On the radio, there is much chatter and confusion. And word comes through that the wolf's body is somehow gone and appears now that there's a man, still bloody, shot up and dead. And Rachel screams and demands to be shown the body. Through tears, she's led through the mud to the corpse. And we see the man, blood and bullet holes, dead. It is the escaped inmate from the asylum, Randall Matimer and Rachel stares, dumbfounded. And then a howl, a howl comes from across the water and Rachel and the police look over and across the river, atop an incline, is our wolf still bleeding, Charlie's wolf, uh, from his original wounds he's got, uh, but he's on his feet. He looks at the commotion commotion on the far bank, the copters, the cars, the carnage. Charlie Wolf turns, runs, and is gone. Um, We have a tiny, tiny uh, time lapse. Rachel is sitting by the police truck, blanket over her classic, and a woman is led over to her. Rachel looks up, and we see Alex, and she has tears, and of course, it's up her again, and Rachel is like, you're his mum, right? I saw your photo, and Alex is like, I am, yes, and Rachel says, well, he's gone, not dead, but he's gone forever. He was weaker than the wolf, and Alex says, they always are. And she starts to cry and Rachel starts to cry and they stand and they embrace and walk away together. And a police officer says to Rachel, ma'am, are you okay? And Alex says, it's okay, we're family. And night falls on Manhattan and the moon rises over the Hudson and over the sound of the traffic and the horns and the shouts, we see the Empire State Building and perched on the top, we see our wolf, Charlie is gone forever. He's an alpha, he's an apex predator. And from the top of the Empire State, he looks into his kingdom and the full moon, and he tilts back his head and he howls. And the final shot is the skyline of Manhattan, and the wolf's cry ringing out, covering it all. And then there's a moment, and then there's another howl of a ply from far away, and then another massive deep howl from far away, and then another, and another, and another. There are a sea of wolves, a chorus of howls, a family united, and then moon river kicks in and we have the end
2: of <laughs> the and,
1: uh, and I've got a tagline. I've got two taglines.
0: The I always thought tagline... what just, got, i got a shiver from that last <laughs> thing. Go Please give me the tagline. Uh,
1: I have to go straight in because it seems too, too gross to leave a pause for applause. It's horrible. So I have to go straight into the tagline. But the first tagline is blood remembers, simple. And no. the second one, uh, a craving for blood, a family of secrets. Some curses are worse than others. Wow! So, so there you are. There you are, Julie. That's my uh, American werewolf sequel. An English werewolf in New York.
0: Sheppy, flipping heck! I'm just gonna. I don't know if that's gonna come through the headphones. But my <laughs> God! I, just, I don't know how you do it. I, don't know, I just don't know how you do it. There are some pictures that, like, you know, I'm just so glad we did this little endeavour because they get to happen. That is absolutely in that canon. And it's just, it's just absolutely perfect. It's perfect. Oh, oh. It really Thank amazing. you. And Jesus, man, the run you're on with your pictures is extraordinary after 14 and this <laughs> But it's <just, laughs> absolutely amazing. Sheppy, that was an hour, that pitch. I say that without complaint. I'm telling you, I was on the edge of the seat the whole bloody time. That's was absolutely I, amazing. I, just,
1: yeah. I tried to get through it as fast as possible. But yeah, yeah the beginning...
0: The
2: The hot dog alone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, yes. And I, again, I have to re-emphasise the fact that any sort of humorous, potential humorous moment with the wolf, it's always played honouring. You know, it's not like yeah. the wolf being like...
2: Rrr. Listen like now. And,
0: and even just like the cop swarming, and the way you create that big build up at the end. It's one of the things I really like about the, the first one. It's one of the few times you see Piccadilly like that. You know what I mean? Like with it actually suddenly go into a very dramatic action movie ending almost. You know, it was really cool. Yeah. You take the original, you build on it, you build on the mythology, loads of little rug pulls. That is a a very very exquisite tribute to a brilliant movie, Sheppy. That is really, yeah. man, that's something special, honestly.
1: That means the world to me. Thank you so Thank much, you. Jimmy. So uh, that's that, that's very very nice to say.
0: I think it's in the running for the best Sheppy pitch of song so far for me. It was absolutely stunning, man. And I, I'm luckily I've got my little word document open. I can't even look you in the face as I say this, but
1: pitch push. You
0: know, this is well, you can push, push all you like, man, but this is absolutely a ridiculous follow that. And I apologize to the listeners, um, for what's about to follow, which is just not worthy to be on the flea collar of your werewolf. But it's just, yeah,
1: this is this um, is this is just making work for future Jimmy. This has
0: oh, got to go. Not, I'm not going out, it's staying in. Jimmy has the scissors, so you know, you have to deal with it. Um, okay, so look, I'll get cracking on. Um, my we, we have got. I, I think I said at the top end, Sheppy. there might be some differences for us. I actually think there's more interesting similarities, which is, which is quite cool. Um, now, my title is... Uh, so I, I had one other title up until the last minute, and I changed it. So my title is A Half American Werewolf in London, uh, 1983, John Landis. So, um sure.
1: What was your other total? You, can you say? Or well,
0: yeah, a... yeah, no, it's not. Son of an American werewolf in London was the other one. And the oh, only right, nice. I didn't um, keep it was I wanted to have a moment where someone was that, saying, like, you know, son of American, son of an American werewolf. And then, like, in <laughs> Power Style, someone else was going to chip in and go, in London, we do. <laughs> you know, I was going to have that moment. In it, and I couldn't crowbar it. So, in the end, <laughs> um, a half American werewolf in London. And I suppose that end, the the plot and through line is very similar to yours, but I've got more of a little nipper running around Omen style here. So um, oh nice. Um. So our uh, and the other thing I've done as well is I am a big fan of Doctor Hirsch. So John Woodbine kind of comes in front and centre in mine in this sequel. He's oh
1: fantastic. amazing.
0: So Doctor Hirsch has got a big big part here. We've got um, Jenny Agata uh, as uh, nurse Alice Price again, and I've put some kid as uh, <laughs> David Jr. is the name of the kid. Um, so yeah. that is um, the top cast, Sheppi. I have got a sprinkling of cameos. If I'd remembered uh, the fact that, you know, it was it, it, the directors were more prevalent than kind of stars, if you like, as cameos, then I would. Um, I would probably switch some of these out for directors, but that's okay. There's some funny cameos. There's there's some nods to other things. I think I've gone more park mead than serious here, and I apologize for that. But maybe that's nice because there's no. This is a very this is a little end for the last one. So, um, I um, yeah, but I will tell you Brian Glover and Rick Mayell are back as well.
2: Nice,
0: um, as a little tease. So, as with as with the classic Jimmy pitch. A little bit more front-ended, but then really falls apart at the end. And I just give you the grace notes at the end. So um open on a shot of a hospital corridor. So we can hear breathing, a bit muffled. It almost sounds like a growling snarl, sounds muffled, sounds like it could be a werewolf. Turns out it's actually nurse Alice Price giving birth. There you go, Sheppy. So exactly the same opening
2: scene. I love it. Um
0: we go straight to um post birth. She sits. She's lying in bed with the baby, um, and Dr. Hirsch is with her. And I've just put it here. Dr. Hirsch is giving it his full clipped bedside manner exposition. Like, I really like. How he, he kind of talks in exposition, and he's sort of very. He's got a really clipped British accent. I really like it, really um, cool. and I sort of. I feel like he's just a tone below Matt Berry, <laughs> you know, like. Oh, yeah. He's, like, funny like Matt Berry, like he just. I like. Serious enough,
2: yeah.
1: I like how he's bulletproof when he goes into the slaughtered lamb. Like he's not rattled. Everyone else is rattled around him, and he has a nice sip, one sip of his you know, of his drink, and then you know, he's totally cool. And he just had a massive drive. He's going to drive
2: all the way back, but he, he's cool as a cucumber. So yeah, I like that.
0: <laughs> and um, and then. Now, basically, his exposition. The best of man is all you know. Now, given the parentage, every full moon we must keep him under guard. And that wonderful sort of you know, sort of said, I'll just repeat myself there, bit of the future Jimmy. But yeah, uh, I'll say that one again. Oh blimey, Here we go. Um, uh, so you know, it, it, what he said. He he's talking to uh, Nurse Price, and he says, you know, given the parentage, every full moon we must keep him under guard, and. um, And Agatha's back saying, you know, should we tell Dave's parents? Should they know they have a grandchild? And he goes, no one must know, Alice. You know, so um, this boy, this young man is at least half you, Alice, but we can't be sure if he really is fully human. And then we get the title card of Half American World in London.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And um, then we get a little other, you know, three years later, and we've got (laughs) Alice and Dr. Hirsch living together in a kind of a, I, 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 it's never said but you know you totally know that he's uh he's mm. taken over daddy duties and all the, and all the different responsibilities um and they are <laughs> testing the kid david jr but nicely <laughs> if that's even <laughs> possible but just you know i suppose doing whatever they need to do to just see um, whether he's showing signs of uh, turning um, and they're also kind of protecting him from the wider world, because it was obviously a huge incident in Piccadilly Circus. Um, and, um, and one of the small little things, you know, we've obviously got this toddler, um, David Jr. One of the small little things Dr. Hirsch is finding around his, um, you know, he's extensively given up his time at the hospital, or at least juggling his shifts with creating this little test centre he's sort of complaining about the uh, the various transformers that are scattered around on the ground that the kid's been playing with this is the 80s shall we? and um and anyway every full moon the boy is starting to show signs of agitation and um one full moon night alice has to go into work hirsch is looking after the kid he trips on one of the transformers and knocks himself out on a transformer before he can restrain the toddler as a precaution um Sure enough, and straight in I've gone for uh, this isn't going to be as uh, as as would be probably more appropriate a werewolf well lore, sheppy um a uh, 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 teenage metamorphosis. we're not waiting there the kids metamorphosis to a wolf cub um and we've got I've just put some amazing Rick Baker effects here, and um I don't know if we really gave full justice to Rick Baker Ellie. did we, but we talked about it quite a bit actually at the top probably. we
1: we touched on it, but no, Rick Baker. You know, it was it was groundbreaking and it looks
2: yeah equally impressive
0: these days Does, doesn't it? first ever oscar for visual effects that's nice um but uh the so anyway then we we cut to alice at work as a uh, perhaps looking after another spoilt brat there's a lovely little grace note of the original as well when she's looking after those kids um
1: and oh then... that little wanker benjamin that yeah. little kid who he ever says no no yeah. what a bastard
0: he is a bastard, <laughs> the poor kid. <laughs> and then, uh, so I put like, you know, essentially with 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 uh, Alice at work, um, the kid wolf actually gets out of the facility and I've put here, starts causing chaos across London in little nibbles. So here's some cameos for you. Um, Denim Elliott is a theatre actor <laughs> in three-quarter Shakespearean garb in a Soho um, alley having a cheeky cigarette between scenes (laughs) and and gives it the full who's there you know he might sort of do that with his obvious (laughs) Um, and he pulls out his prop dagger and starts to walk towards the bins, and then we have a proper scary little jump scare from behind the bins Mm. Um, then we have Robbie (laughs) Coltrane as a black cabbie Um, R.I.P. R.I.P. that's exactly why he went in to be honest um and he's just picking up a well-to-do lady who I haven't cast here. Um, and she requests... He her
2: scales.
0: Yeah, Brinnell Scales. Let's throw her in as a nice link back to the last pitch. And um, he's picking up a well-to-do lady um, and who requests Westminster before with the door open to the cab still. And before she can sit down, she sees the wee werewolf as silent, like absolute terror, jumps out and then starts running away. Um, and of course, the wolf is then shut in the back of the cab, <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> the train is lost in his own hubris, and he sort of says, "Westminster, eh? I'm not one to talk politics in my cab, though." And then the uh, the well werewolf, werewolf growls, and he goes, "Aye, I voted Labour too, you know." So, <laughs> and um, and then we don't actually see what happens next, but we can imagine a gorge, Robbie. Oh dear. Um, yeah,
2: and then. Um, <laughs>
0: break it so you that, that could that that could
1: really be that could go the full space balls route you realize that Bobby's <laughs> trying to put on the seat belt. like damn things not connecting <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: absolutely that's fucking amazing that's amazing um um <laughs> uh <laughs> totally, that's my point. That's a wonderful <laughs> point. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah. So Hirsch, Doctor Hirsch, um, you know, conscious uh, again, gets to Alice's hospital, tells her what's happened, um and then as he tells her, he full disclosure gives it, and there's this, and he's been bitten on the arm too. He too has been afflicted oh, before the kid left. So um in Westminster, back in Westminster. Maybe we do see a bit of Robbie in the background uh, of the cab or something, but. um, You just see
2: this crashed
1: cab with steam rising out of like the crushed (laughs) bonnet, and it's like, you just
2: assume poor old Robbie.
0: (laughs) Um, We've got the kid basically uh, biting a policeman outside number 10, and this (laughs) is where I absolutely lose it like i don't even know why i put this in i saw an opportunity i don't know why it's so silly (laughs) i don't even know whether in the chronology of films well let me tell you this i don't think it makes sense (laughs) let us see and you can correct me because you'll know i think instantly possibly whether whether i've done this about chronology but anyway inside number 10 um the actress Janet Brown, don't know if you know who oh. she is, the yeah. wife, is cooking for Dennis Thatcher and finishing tall right. before she hears a squawk at the end of the call. <laughs> oh
2: Instead my God, the it's like ultimate crossover. Oh,
0: they put me through to a para. Now, I can't even tell you whether you realize that it was 1983, it was already. 81, out. man. Oh, oh so we're in. we were
1: talking about this last podcast. It's the film I saw at the same time as Condor oh, Man in the cinema
0: amazing what <laughs> a Sheppy! i'm oh, sorry i forgot that i don't keep the dates in but um, amazing amazing okay cool um lovely i knew you'd know Sheppy. as i said that's great so look more chaos there and um so i mean britain has lost its freaking prime minister due to this and um, so um got hirsch looking for mark um at one point they pass an adult cinema with the sequel to the porno from the first movie, which I'm going to call "See you next Thursday um even though of course <laughs> that makes no sense because he'd never do that because it would have to have a You next Wednesday somewhere else in the movie instead, but that's okay um and then um
1: not if it's the sequel
0: that's true, that's nice and then um he's uh he's outside the cinema and um and basically uh he sits to, <laughs> with Alice he may be in here, Alice. And like, I was like, I don't think you, you, I insist, we're as thorough as possible. So <laughs> Dr. Hirsch goes to check the Porto Theatre. And um, as dawn breaks, the papers are um, leading with the story of, you know, the PM gorged, hundreds of Londoners bitten by a rabid...
2: What? Well, ra- the,
1: the Prime Minister got eaten? Sorry, yeah. I totally missed that. Yeah, when was, did that uh, happen? But, like, what, but was the, wolf, the, the... So the way I heard it, it was outside number 10, and... There's the wolf is biting a policeman and it cut to the inside and Margaret Thatcher's on the phone and she said, I think they put me through to a parrot. And that's all I heard. So I missed any scene of a wolf attack inside number 10.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, I it's more chaos, Sheppy, and I didn't actually give you the full seed or anything. But the prime minister is gone. She's gone. Okay, by I missed girl. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. She's there, not even gone. She's actually been bitten. Um, I should say that, like, and that's a really key point here. Like, um, because he's only a wee baby. Um. We aren't actually necessarily talking about even robbie and whatnot i got carried away with robbie getting gorged as well but the bottom line is we're talking about wee bites actually rather than pure gorgement and that's kind of one of the problems we have here uh, which i'll come to in one sec so um well the 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 papers basically don't know what's happened but that you know because it's not necessarily as full-on as what they saw previously and they're trying to guess whether it's a rat fox wolf cub what's happening um and eventually um, and Hirsch in their, their search for um, David Jr. find him in exactly the same spot in Piccadilly Circus um, in the alley where his father was killed in the first one. Um, cold, naked, feverish, he's just a little boy, you know. So um, Hirsch, uh, immediately reading the papers and seeing what's happening on, realises the gravity of the situation. Um, it's very grave. The next full moon, um, which is coming obviously the following month, is actually going to be a, a humdinger it's going to last three months and sorry three nights and london will be an asylum with all these people that have been bitten because um so that you know i guess that is the threat here that, that given it's just a little wee baby everyone's been like just lightly bitten lightly bitten little nibble and um, and, and london might actually have hundreds of werewolves running around and he's trying to inform the authorities um but uh, but no one's taking him seriously. Um, he's still protecting David Jr. while he's obviously trying to tell people, you know, and have lots of uh, fun scenes with the police again, et cetera. But no one's taking him seriously. Um, goes to the top. But of course, because Maggie has actually, in turn, been um, given a wee uh, nibble herself, nothing's happening. Um, and uh, and of course, there's a there's a bit with her, you know, we have reason to suspect these people have been bitten by a werewolf unless we can be sure who's who the next full moon will be three days, and London will be chaos so uh, with no further options, Hirsch goes back to finish his pint at the slaughtered lamb okay. and um and basically um the uh, everyone is suspicious of the the doctor again um but he has he goes back with uh, uh, uh Alice and uh, david Jr. um but the uh, really to seek um you know refuge and um and 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 sort of feels like that might be one of the few places that might know what to do. Doesn't tell them about the origin of David Junior or himself or the fact that he's been uh, bitten too. Um, but of course, the sort of band don't want to take him in. Um, and um, he manages to talk around uh, And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 group then go through a, a a lamb sacrifice, which we see in all its in all its gory uh, detail. Um, smear the blood over the doors to ward off the evil spirit of any werewolves that might come from london um, put up a pentangle and all that kind of stuff do all the you know the the, the, the rituals i guess that, that they, they they might do at the tavern um, at this point point, um, we, we see all that and it's, it was glorious i say um, and then the night comes around again we get that we get the month later night and um this is like really very very sweeping here Sheppy. but we have london in chaos i've put lots of opportunities for callbacks for um, transformations of elliot and coltrane and of course maggie um and um, and and then uh, and you know maggie eats dennis in the kitchen let's just say as well. it's pretty dark and then uh, of course despite the ritual inside the slaughtered lamb we have hirsch and david jr transforming um, we've got we then we then have Brian Glover and Rick Mail Eaton at the pub, um, maybe with an unfinished game of chess, and um, and then basically I've I just put here Doctor Hirsch gets put down by Alice Mann, who um, is protecting David Jr. who has transformed as well, but you know is is obviously that wee bit more controllable, and they're probably tied him down in the room, and um, and the last shot is Alice driving off into the countryside with David Jr. at the end of all of the all of the chaos. The Sheppy is way sweeping, man. I feel sort of, um, you know, almost guilty that I didn't get into more detail than that. But that is basically half American wealth in London, um, and it's just uh, a lot of, um, you know, silliness in London and a continuation of blightiness. That
1: yeah. So, um, I love the idea of. So, so you're saying that Coltrane. Didn't, doesn't get eaten, so he's driving in the taxi and he gets a bite. And then there's a shot in Margaret in, in Margaret Thatcher's kitchen where she's reaching for the old one and he jumps out of the cupboard or something and bites her. And then there's like a large montage of like him just nipping everyone, which is such a good idea. And like he's hiding in a bin and someone, and like, you know, someone puts their you know, banana skin in and he bites their hand. And yeah, I can really see that working. And I don't know if it's ever happened before, it's such a good idea because it's like this kind of like little whirling dervish running all over london and on the tube you can have a great scene and everywhere um and like going to shake someone's hand and this like little wolf bastard jumps out and just like bites someone yeah and like nibbling on an ankle in a restaurant yeah you could do loads of it, it gets into a football match and then like a whole sequence there and then the big triple moon you know full moon triple nighter and and the whole of London turned into werewolves. That's genius. That's absolutely brilliant. I love it. I love I really it. We
0: wanted to go off on one a bit more and have it like as a, they have to just literally close the M25. The, the idea would be you close the M25, but the problem is if you don't believe it and the, the prime minister has been scratched to or bitten to, you know, then, uh, you know, people have already got out, but it's uncontainable. England is uncontainable, okay. like, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, 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 that that is exactly it, Sheppy. It's I, I
1: werewolf think. as um, as plague. It's genius. It's genius. I don't think it's ever been done before.
0: Well, Sheppy, I, I didn't fully flesh it out, literally, anyway. <laughs> oh, but uh, but yeah, thanks, man. Well, look, I I think uh, I I had a bit of fun, like like. I even in the pitch itself, I got excitable at the thought of Robbie being gorged for some reason, which is really nasty. R.I.P. Robbie, and I and I forgot my own. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> but, but yeah, so um, but yes, absolutely, that's the intention. And then this ticking that's time great. bomb, and everyone hiding it from their partners and others. Yep, and you could play with that as well in the in the month between a lot more.
1: Yes, you know, for sure. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Um, I you could really you could make it that. I mean, the slipping on the transformer. You could have like a great scene where he's just doing the, you know, fastening the, the things and it's like a big full sense of security and he's like fixing little Wolfie into bed and he's strapping him in. And then like, he's like, and there you go. And then like, he just sinks his teeth in or like just, you know, there's a big jump. Or you could even have it like as a massive twist near the end where he turns into the world who you didn't know he was bitten. And that would be great too. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah um no jimmy that's wonderful really really good and
2: uh, and i like it very much yes
0: well listen so i, I mean that was great I loved yours too man so um i guess there's a final order of business today which is uh to give you the pitch for next time
1: very excited jimmy
0: it's uh we're moving from the 80s to the 90s sir oh i like it brace yourself um and we are going to be reunited with a movie that we really both love, I think. Saw it together at the cinema. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Gross Point Blank Sheppy. I'd like a sequel to Gross Point Blank. That's
1: That's absolutely lovely. Ooh, yes. It almost turned into Frank Spencer there. Almost, not on purpose. That's brilliant. Fantastic Jimbo. Um, Great. So this was a treat, this was wonderful, I liked it all very, very much, and so how on earth do we sign out of such a, 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 a wolfy, I don't know, is, are we going to have a howling good time? Oh it, uh, are we growing too long in the tooth? Oh my
0: of... god. Do I we need you.
1: to claws for effect?
0: Oh my god. <laughs> I <I'm> feel gorgeous <sometimes. laughs> um.
1: I regret everything. <laughs>
0: We'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at shoulderspod.com or shoulderspod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.